Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, June 20th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Labick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Euro, and joining us today is a fisheries professor from the University of Georgia and a redfish aficionado. He's not a mountain of a man, but he sure looks like a man of the mountain. Please welcome Cajun Jay Shelton, everybody. Then I wrote, there's an applause break, so clap. (laughs) And we're going to continue with the marine theme this month. And I need a drum roll, please. We've got a percussive marine fish called the red drum. I know Guy mentioned red fish. That's another name. As a former snare drum player and drumline captain in my high school marching band, I already feel a big connection with this fish. So super excited to talk with you, Jay. So most people don't look at a fish and say, man, that's something that looks like it can make noise. But there are a number of species that can do that. We've talked about the burbot and the sounds they can make during spawning. We were hoping you could help us dig into this kind of this whole drum situation here. How do they make that sound? When are they doing it? And is it something we can actually hear? Yeah, well, that whole family, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating family of, of coastal fishes, a big, big bunch of fish that are called drums or croakers. So they all have that capacity or, or most of them have that capacity to make some kind of a noise, not always a drum, but some kind of a noise using muscles that are vibrated against their swim bladder. And yes, you can absolutely hear the, the drumming. I have had them big ones swimming underneath my kayak and I could literally hear it and feel it in the kayak. Oh, cool. That's super cool. So yeah, the swim bladders make a good, I guess, drum head. Perfect. Have you ever heard anyone call them channel bass? I think I read that somewhere. I'm like that. That's a stupid name, but you know, there, and there are a lot of other names for them. Obviously red drum and redfish are the two common ones, but I've only read channel bass. I've never heard a human say channel bass. Now there may be other parts within their range where I've not fish before where they're, where they're called by that name. But redfish is certainly the most common in here in the Gulf states where I've, I've done most of my fishing. To be fair, I don't like spotted trout either. In fact, I got a yeah. poster that's got like all the fishes that like North America on and they it's grouped, you know, like phylogenetically, but then they put spotted trout with the Salmonids. And every time I look at it, I'm like, that's like, too no. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, the only distinction in, in Louisiana is between the uh, those juveniles and the really big fish. And it's uh, rat red. Rat red is the harvestable size. I don't know why they call them rat reds. And then bull reds are the bigger, the over the slot fish, the big fish. What's the name for undersized ones? I think that's universally referred to as a dink. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Dinks need love too. This is a stupid question, but are you able to make the red drum sound? Like you've heard them. Can you make the sound that they make? (laughs) Oh, I I wish you told me to practice this, Katrina. I'm going to try to. Close my eyes and think back to, you know, hearing one drum right under my boat. So okay. I'm sure it's going to be a terrible failure, but I'm going to try anyway, just to be silly. But... <clears throat> but, it, yeah. but it's much more, it's much more percuss- <laughs> percussive than that. I don't, I don't have the, you know, I don't have that swim bladder that I can slam my diaphragm up against, you know, to make that percussive sound. Cause it really does. It would literally, it loud. the oh. bottom of the boat would tremble. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. You mentioned that you had them swim under your, your kayak there, Jay. How, how is it that you're typically going after these fish? Well, my fa- I do love kayak fishing, and 
I do love sight fishing. And so that's actually one of the reasons that redfish are so awesome is that they're just kind of the perfect coastal fish to go after where you're uh, all, you know, all by yourself out there in the marsh, you're stalking individual fish or small groups of fish. And that sight fishing thing is really, really exciting. It's almost more like hunting than fishing because you're stalking individual fish. You're trying to see what direction they're moving in and you got to make that perfect cast. And as you know, guy, I'm kind of a fly fishing nerd. So, you know, that just adds another challenge to it to, to present that fly to where a fish will eat it. Yeah, I imagine you're standing up trying to cast these fish. How do you maintain stability and don't keep from going head over heels into the water? You know, I've thought about that, especially at my advanced age, because uh, I recently took up another really silly sport, which is paddleboard fly fishing. And I I really love that. But I thought it was going to be tough, but it turned out it was easy. And here's my theory on that. I don't know if y'all have ever heard of a P-Roll. Yeah, yeah. It's a French word, but it, it, it uh, is a very common means of transportation, at least when I was a kid in South Louisiana. And almost everybody had a P-Rog, which is a very shallow draft. It kind of looks like a canoe that somebody cut off and put a flat bottom on it. It's only got about four inches of freeboard on the sides. You know, you're really down low to the water, but you can travel in really shallow water in a P-Rog. And it's quite commonly used for fishing and for duck hunting. And in fact, the best way to get around in really shallow marshy places is to stand in that P-Rog and use a push pole. So you're pulling through the marsh, which is, you know, it's it's something that uh, I think because I grew up doing it, I've just got that balance and it, it doesn't seem like that tough of a thing to do. So for someone who catches one of these fish and you have one in hand, what are some of the key characteristics you might want to look at to identify it? That, that's a great question. You know, they're a robust fish, pr- pretty good, you know, beefy looking fish. Of course, that we call them redfish or red drum because of that it's kind of a brassy, you know, sometimes a brassy brown uh, color that can almost go to pumpkin colored. And that uh, has to do with their, their, their uh, diet. Then, you know, the diagnostic characteristic, and that's the genus Synops oscillatus, and that oscillatus refers to that eye spot. So somewhere very close to the tail or the peduncle of that fish usually is one or more vivid black spots. It is theorized that that black spot on the tail kind of serves to confuse predators. So the predator sees that big spot and it goes for the tail, which leaves the head unaffected and it allows the fish to escape. But the other thing is they sort of have a subterminal mouth, you know, slightly down underneath, kind of tucked in underneath. And that has, of course, that's directly related to their feeding behavior. They do spend a lot of time foraging on the bottom for crustaceans and that mouth serves them very well. So that subterminal mouth, that robust golden color and that eye spot. And it's pretty much going to be a redfish. It's cool that those eye spots have evolved in all kinds of critters from fish to insects. To, yep. Yeah, it's just pretty amazing. It makes sense in terms of trying to escape from predators. And you might think, well, once these fish get big, they don't have many predators. But that's definitely not true. That There certainly in are. In the ocean, yeah. In the ocean and, yeah. and in those uh, estuarine areas in particular, dolphins are probably one of the biggest predators. Huh. So they've adapted to avoid those dolphins. And I've seen dolphins feasting on 10 pound redfish regularly. While we're talking about the ice spot, we, we covered bowfin on this show not too long ago. And we know in that species, it's only the males that develop that ice spot. Is that the case in the redfish too, or no? It's not the case in the redfish. They'll all develop that ice spot. Now, when we think of it as just one single, uh, one single spot, but I've seen redfish with literally dozens of spots. It is somewhat variable usually, and especially on the, the adults, you, you'll, that, that one spot will be, will be quite prominent in both males and females. 
So it sounds like you've seen some instances where these fish are really in great abundance. And I've never actually had a chance to go after redfish. But, you know, you hear about all this like just wild kind of iconography in the world of like fishing lore and fish art. And everyone talks about the tailing reds and seeing the spots yeah. uh, hanging out there. I was wondering, is there any moments that stand out in your mind to targeting these fish when you just you think back? It's like, ah, that is something that I can't even describe, but I want you to try. Yeah, definitely. There, there was a moment when, uh, in fact, I was uh, with a friend of mine fishing down in Louisiana. You know, that's my home water. And we'd been hunting for fish and fishing for individuals or two or three fish all day. And we we're having a great day. But all of a sudden, we saw some kind of disturbance off in the distance. And we sort of used a trolling motor to ease over there and investigate. And we got close. We realized that it literally was a school of redfish that, that was more than an acre in size. It's hard to estimate how many fish we saw because the water was just boiling and frothing with these fish. And we realized that if we positioned ourselves just right, they would just swim right up and come right by us. And so we staked off the boat and we just waited and we let them come and we just watched. And, and when they got right on top of us and we were both fly fishing and we both cast course we immediately hooked up we caught a double we caught two fish and we landed those fish and then we just sat there watching for a long period of time those fish were foraging and it just really wasn't an extraordinary moment not one you know you'll see a lot but it, it was it was pretty awesome what's it like if you're in your kayak and you catch a large one well we have a name for that down in south louisiana we call that a cajun sleigh ride <laughs> because you know it's a pretty big strong fish and and when you hook up going to take you for a ride you know not quite like a tarpon does but it's going to pull you around for a while so it is a challenge it's a lot of fun when i think about fishing in the areas you're talking about versus fishing up here for salmon it seems simple up here i know when the kings are coming and then i'm going to fish sockeyes and then cohos and pinks when you're fishing in an estuary or in the marine environment down there, like what are some other species that you might come across? I would just kind of be curious. It's just a, a bigger, more complicated yeah. scene, it or, seems like. Actually, you know, that's a good question. And even within, you know, it, even within that family, that's kind of interesting because it's such a, the cyanidae is such an important family coastally, and there's so many other popular species. And it's kind of funny in Louisiana, but Redfish are not the preferred cyanid by any means, and probably true through most of their range. Spotted sea trout, which are closely related, you know, in that, in that same family, is a more popular sport fish because it tastes better, it's extremely abundant, and it's, also, it's commonly called speckled trout. Speckled trout fisheries are huge, very, just wildly popular throughout this range. But other cyanids that you could target would include croaker, Croaker is a very popular, very delicious fish within that range. But some of the others, uh, weak fish on the, on the Atlantic side are popular to fish for. But then some of the other lesser known cyanids include things like the star drum and the spot. You know, they don't ever get very big, which makes them amazing forage to grow big and popular recreational game fish, the predators like the red drum and the speckled trout. But the big three, this is, you know, if you, call, if you talk about a like a Cajun Coastal Cajun Grand Slam would be a day when, you know, you went out and you got some good redfish, you got some good speckled trout, and you got some good flounder. You can add to that, you know, you can have like the, the super Grand Slam or the, you know, the ultimate Grand Slam, and you can add some other really awesome species, which would include, as Guy mentioned, the black drum, which is a good close relative in, in terms of taste. 
you can't tell the difference between a black drum and a red drum. They sometimes hybridize too, don't they? Red and black. I've heard that they do. I've never seen my personally. I've never seen because, you know, it's two different genera. Yeah. But I have heard that uh, uh, about them. But then the other interesting coastal species that are quite common and also good to eat would include things like sheep's head. Then every now and then, you know, you'll be red fishing or speckled trout fishing and something giant will just come through and tear up all your gear. Yeah. yeah. We have some, some big crevel jack and some big sharks that will move through that, those same areas. Really, really powerful fish. Say I'm coming from Alaska. I want to target some redfish, some red drum. What's a good kind of starter, I guess, package or kit I would want to use? You know, what kind of rod, what kind of bait? And then what are some more maybe challenging opportunities for folks who are looking for a little bit more? Right. Well, to start with, you know, part of their life history kind of makes them, as you say, they have a large range and they also move a lot. And so their life history is kind of cool. But in the coastal areas, you know, in the inshore areas, you can get into protected waters, shallow waters, and you can fish for the juveniles. Some of the coastal areas, some of the passes where there's moving water, where they spawn, uh, that's the big bull red. So I think the starter redfish would be those juveniles, which are quite abundant. And, you know, really you call it a juvenile fish, but we're talking about a five to 12 pound fish. You know, it's, it's, it's a pretty substantial fish. When you start targeting those bulls, that's the, you know, 25, 30 plus pound fish. As far as tackle goes, pretty much year round throughout much of their range. And then they do have a spawning migration where these large schools of really big reds, the ones that are called bull reds, will migrate in in the late summer and early fall. Okay. It's pretty big. Everything in estuaries will eat a live shrimp. So you almost can't go wrong with a live shrimp and you might present it under a cork to kind of get it a little bit more shallow, especially in summer and warmer months. But then in the, in the winter, you might use like an egg sinker to try to get it to dead drift down uh, down deeper or down on the bottom to present it when they're kind of chilled down a little bit. And, and uh, you know, this is light tackle spinning uh, gear. A little bit heavier tackle for sure for the for the bulls. For the bulls yeah. um, you're talking about a big strong fish. Yeah, I, I read they get up to like the biggest one was ninety some pounds, ninety four pounds something. That's like crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. It really is crazy. A big strong fish. Can you imagine seeing these huge schools of adult fish of these big bull reds migrating in from the Gulf or from the Atlantic and moving into these passes, moving up into shallow water where where the water is just literally literally red, literally that brassy color, because you're looking at acres of fish. If I was going out trying to catch these on the fly, well, one, where would I look to put in? What, what's the best kind of, you know, we've been talking about the marsh, but just look for boat ramps down. And then, you know, what kind of tackle would you be using? Yeah. Do you need any strong leaders or anything? And okay. what's a spoon fly? I want to know what a spoon fly is. So you probably know what a gold or a silver spoon is like for jig spoon jigging. Um, and it really is the fly anglers attempt to mimic that. And you might say, well, you know, fly fishing is all about matching the hatch. And what hatch are you matching with a gold spoon? Just like a soft, it's like a soft spoon. Right. Okay. Yeah. But a gold spoon catches a lot of different species of fish, you know, globally, a gold spoon. And it's all about that flash. It's, yep. it's because if you watch a lot of bait fish, and in fact, if you watch the behavior of crabs in, in particular, they do have iridescence to them and they will flash at least parts of them will flash under a certain when they catch the light just right. I've watched, for example, schools of bait fish like mullet. And depending on the light conditions, you'll see those flashes. And uh, I, I just think it's that bright flash that gets the fish's attention. But there's also movement involved. And so it's not just, you know, you can have a lot of things that look like a shrimp, for example, 
But if it doesn't behave like a shrimp, it's not going to get the fish's attention. So with crabs and shrimp, you know, they, they tend to move in a jerky pattern oftentimes to escape a predator, but then they'll just kind of slowly drift back down. So that movement of, of a jerk or a flash and then slowly drifting back down, that movement will also get their attention. A, a spoonfly is created by using gold mylar shaped into a spoon shape and then coating it in epoxy so that it's hard enough. Oh, interesting. Because a redfish will yeah. crush. They, you know, they have these crushing, that, this, that pharyngeal adaptation where they will literally eat crabs. You know, they'll crush crab shells. So uh, that's what they'll do to your flies if you don't make them really, really durable. And then in terms of guys' question about where to go, we're lucky now because we've got Google Earth. We've got all of these other sources of spatial information. And so you want to think about tidal movement. And so the time of day matters. But uh, what we usually look for is what we call broken marsh, where there's this kind of a, of a pattern between open water and Spartina marsh grass, that combination, because that vegetation is really, really important for the food. And in Louisiana, they're called ponds, but they're really just sort of open areas within the marsh and the tide will rise into those ponds. And as it does, the redfish will move into that shallow water. And then as the tide falls, they will move out of that shallow water. So the areas to focus on are the, the mouths of those areas where, where the fish are going to move through a, a confined little bottleneck as they go in and as they come out. But what's my favorite is once that water fills in, as the tide rises and those fish move in, and when I say as the tide rises, it might only be a difference of six or eight inches sometimes, but those fish really like to get up into that shallowest water. So I've caught redfish in water that was so shallow that their back was sticking out of the water. Oh, that's cool. I caught, caught big redfish in eight to 12 inches of water. So speaking of diet, I mean, I really like crustaceans too. They taste really good. D does that flavor kind of make its way into the flesh of this fish? Like what are these fish like to eat? What's their filet like? Yeah. You know, that is a good question. And, and if you go back a little ways, one of the causes for concern about redfish with respect to harvest had to do with when they became very popularized when the famous Creole chef from New Orleans, Paul Prudhomme, started to talk and to spread the word about blackened redfish, which is, is a, it is, and it is a good recipe, but they're kind of a flaky fish, a mild fish. I've got some good favorite Cajun recipes I can tell you about, but it's one of the most interesting things and my favorite way to eat a redfish is what's called a redfish on a half shell. Go on. You know, they're a large scaled fish, so they've really got quite a substantial large scale armoring, but you can just fillet that fish. That's it. Just fillet the fish, leave the scales and everything else on. Just get a little bit of garlic butter and basically use that armor, that those scales and skin to broil the fish in its own shell and put a little bit of lemon and garlic butter on that. And it's just fabulous. Just like that. Oh, that sounds amazing. Guy, have you eaten them? No, I haven't. I haven't. Uh, I do hear that they taste a little bit like black drum, especially when they're they're smaller. And well, that is one thing I wanted to talk to you about because, you know, you get in the 80s, there's this craze, the population kind of sinks down a little bit or quite a bit. Quite a bit. Uh, and since then, because it is, you know, a popular food fish, but also a wildly popular sport fish, there's been heavy management uh, measures that have taken place. And since you're a fisheries scientist, a fisheries management sort of professor, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about that. Yeah. Yeah, no, everything you said is, is really right on there in terms of the history. Tremendous concerns over over harvest back during a period when there was, you know, the range on this fish is sort of amazing because all the way up the Atlantic to like Massachusetts and then all the way down to Florida on the Atlantic side and then all the way around in the Gulf of Mexico, all the way over to Mexico. 
environmentally, those Atlantic fisheries are very different from Gulf of Mexico fisheries, especially because of the differences in the tides. But you're right, Guy, that there was a tremendous amount of commercial harvest. And one of the big kind of the landmark thing that happened with redfish is that they started to ban gillnet fisheries for redfish throughout its range. And when they banned those gillnet fisheries, it had a big effect. They were harvesting, you know, as you can imagine, a schooling fish like this, when you you get them in gillnets, you can just really, really effectively remove large numbers for commercial for commercial harvest. So when that was banned, we did definitely see a, a resurgence. And then since then, there's been a lot of concerns, as there are with all of these estuarine fishes, all of these estuarine species, with other threats above and beyond just over harvest. But you're right, there's been a lot of a lot of regulations, and it's interesting. I don't know on the show if y'all talked much about slot limits. We haven't much, but if you'd like to, that'd be something good to cover. Yeah, Katrina and I were actually on the phone right before this thing, talking about what we wanted to talk with you about. And that's one thing that I wanted to make sure we covered. So yeah, go ahead. And it's sort of become a basic tool for fisheries management in certain areas, especially for some of the popular you know, recreational fisheries like this. And of course, the redfish harvest limits do vary from state to state, but in general, they involve a slot limit. So for example, here in Georgia, where I'm living, current limit for redfish it says that you have to have a fish, you can harvest a fish that is 14 inches long up to 23 inches long. That's the slot. So you can harvest fish within that slot limit. That's a daily harvest limit. Okay. And you can have five fish here in Georgia. It's slightly different in Louisiana. The slot is 16 inches to 27 inches, but the daily limit is five, but they do, they do allow you to harvest one fish over 27 inches. So in general, the idea with the slot is you kind of protect those smaller fish under the slot so that you can you can see recruitment up into the larger age classes. And then you protect those breeding fish, those fish greater than the upper maximum of the slot. You're protecting your breeding population. And it does seem to be pretty effective. Just one point to make. I mean, it's just you've mentioned a couple of different numbers over that range and it is a big range. So just a point to folks out there to make sure you check your state regs. Probably every year, I would guess those slots can kind of change to respond to management. So always check those regs. They do change. If you fish in in multiple states like I do, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Louisiana, you need to check those very carefully before you hit the water. I have a question about just, again, their kind of range and how big it is. Do you see differences in how these fish look from, say, Massachusetts or if you're fishing down near Mexico? Are there different subpopulations or at all just kind of the same? There definitely are a lot of differences. And so we say it's an estuarine fish, but that's not enough. And so in terms of climate, in terms of habitat, that's a broad range and things up there in North Carolina and above. So the the North Atlantic states, very, very different habitat. We get down to Georgia and what we call the Georgia Bight in the South Atlantic states, Georgia, South Carolina and Florida, very different habitat. And then you go around to the Gulf, very different again. So there's differences in the appearance of the fish, differences in their behavior. I know I've seen some fish from Georgia and farther north, and they were very silvery. And you don't get what we call those pumpkins. You don't get those bright red fish in Georgia the way you do in South Louisiana or on the Gulf Coast. One thing about estuarine fish, I think, to keep in mind is that life revolves around the tides. You know, it's all about those, t- those tidal ranges and understanding the, what that moving water means to those fish. You know, those Atlantic tides... That's quite a large cycle. Those Gulf tides, you know, a big tide is just a foot. But even those on the Gulf, that moving water means it brings the food. Yep, different foods too. That's exactly right. 
this is a species where the estuary is really important. And we know that estuaries are really important to a lot of fish for, you know, rearing of juveniles, um, just important habitat in general. But they're also pretty fragile. Are there some threats facing these fish from a habitat standpoint along their range? Gosh, yeah. I recently attended the Georgia chapter of the American Fish Society meeting, and they basically had an entire symposium talking about redfish status, stock assessments, et cetera. You know, we focus a lot on harvest, but honestly, some of the habitat issues are, are you know, probably much more important in these estuaries because that is the mixing zone between the fresh and the salt. So everything that happens upgrading upstream in a watershed has an effect on the freshwater portion of that estuary. And then bigger, even bigger, you know, climatic changes and other types of changes like the frequency of storms and the, the habitat, the status of our barrier islands, which are, you know, very, very fragile along the coast. But that's the, that's the interface there, that fresh and salt interface. That's where we're working when we talk about these estuarine species. Even things like um, development along the coast has an effect on the, on the movement and the, the habitat on those barrier islands. And then all of the freshwater issues in terms of not only the quantity of stormwater that we see in the estuaries, but the quality of stormwater, eutrophication issues because of nutrients, other types of pollution affects anything that affects global or local environmental conditions is going to have an effect on these estuarine species. Do you know if the major effects are mainly geared towards like the recruitment of the fish or the kind of carrying capacity of the adult population? Well, the answer is yes. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah. So there's not one answer and it's not the same in uh, throughout the range. For example, there are issues that are of causes for concern in areas of Florida or Georgia that are somewhat different than the, the ones over on the northern Gulf states like Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi. But you got to remember ecology is all, for a fish, you know, survival is all about feeding and breeding. And both of those are affected when we talk about habitat. Both of those are critical. For example, when we change the hydrology, the movement of the, of the water in the marsh as a result of things like creating deeper shipping channels or deepening port areas, that's going to have an effect on the successful spawning of those fish because they spawn right at the edge of the estuary. But those, uh, those newly hatched larvae have got to migrate deep into the marsh in order to survive. And then when the time comes, they got to migrate back out. As they move, they got to feed. So things that affect crabs and shrimp and oysters and other species within the estuary are going to affect the redfish. It sounds very complicated, but are there certain things people can think about, like things they can do to reduce their impact along the Definitely. coast? I know it's much larger than any one person, but just anything simple for folks to consider? One thing, you know, we it's sort of corny, but we, we say it a lot is, you know, you think locally, but try to act globally. And so, so there's, there definitely are some things that folks can do. I really encourage people to get involved in knowing what's in your own backyard. And that applies to wherever you live, because, you know, I, I live here in Athens, Georgia, and the Oconee River is part of the greater Altamaha Basin. And there are redfish down on the other end of this. And so if we could start managing land use and managing at that watershed scale, I think everything would benefit. We, you know, we've seen some some success stories, for example, in Chesapeake Bay as a result of that watershed scale management and, you know, kind of understanding that in ecology, everything is connected. And then in, in the coastal areas, there is a move, a tendency towards what we kind of want to think of as greener development, you know, a little bit more ecologically friendly development. I think that is really important, but getting behind that. So getting behind the, um, 
the nonprofit organizations that kind of focus on the health of these systems at a larger scale, I think is a, is a really good idea. Speaking of like long timescales, I mean, fish have developed their strategy over a long, long time and they can't just pivot on a dime and nothing, nothing really can in the animal kingdom. So yeah, these changes, it's not like they can be like, oh, I'm going to spawn somewhere else and I'm going to spawn in the right. ocean. Or- but redfish have an advantage, I think, in a way. And I think, I, have y'all used the term urihaline before for some species? Maybe once. Guy probably used it once, maybe. <laughs> probably. I, well, maybe not. Go, go ahead and describe it. I like the term, so... So redfish are are really like the poster child for a urihaline species because we can grow them in fresh water and we can grow them in full strength seawater. And in order for them to complete their life cycle, they require all of that. And so I found redfish in salinities of, you know, less than one, as well as, you know, salinities of up to 32 parts per thousand. But because they're urihaline, and because, you know, they're a mobile fish, they can move to the areas that have the, the most suitable habitat, which means they might move to an area where there is a lot of crabs or shrimp for them to feed on, or they might move to another area where there's a lot of mullet and menhaden for them to feed on, and they have that capacity. So they're resilient fish. If we just give them half a chance, they can really thrive. You know the show, Jay. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that other people hear about how cool redfish are? One of the interesting things, and and Guy, you know, this is true for for Salmanas as well and Katrina, you know, you think about, we often kind of categorize anglers as in terms of like, there'll be fit people who are really mostly always catch and release. And then there are people who, you know, if they catch it, they're going to bring it home and cook it and eat it. But I think with redfish and and certainly with some other species, there's kind of room for, for all of that to kind of be somewhere in the middle. I love to eat redfish. You know, I, there's a wonderful recipe that's very popular down South Louisiana called the Coubillon or court bouillon, which is really a a tomatoey, a spicy tomatoey stew made with redfish. And it's really, really delicious served over rice. So I, I, you know, I, I do catch and release a lot of redfish, but I do like to eat some fish uh, uh, from time to time. And it's one of those good species because it's got a good healthy population. If it's properly managed that we can see some uh, handle some, some uh, recreational harvest, And so that's kind of a neat thing about them is that they kind of serve both purposes there. And I think it's kind of cool about them. Yeah. Versatile fish. I guess my final question is for folks listening out there who maybe never planned to fish or who are just getting interested in fish. Why should they care about this fish? Yeah, because of its life history, I think that it really is a good indicator of overall ecological health between, you could argue even between different ecosystems because that the early life stages depend so heavily on that inshore area. And then they kind of, it's pretty awesome. You know, they'll come in to spawn in the fall and depending on where they are within their range, they may go back offshore right away or they may just hang out all, all winter long inshore. Sometimes those big fish will stay inshore all winter long or right on the edge of the marsh. And then they move back out into the open ocean. But when those big schools decide it's time to go back in the open ocean, we don't really know that much about them. You know, we talk about anadromous fishes and migratory fishes, but this is an example of essentially movement and, and life history that involves everything from pure saltwater to fresh water and the connections between the two. So it's a really, the health of that really is, to me, is indicative of the overall health of that part of the world. And that it sounds cool too, because I mean, it sounds like if you're just a kayaker who doesn't fish or someone who's along the coast, maybe you can see some of this. Yeah. Some of these really cool migrations and movements. Oh yeah, definitely. Fish watching, I think should be a thing just like bird watching. 
Yeah, we want everyone to get to know all the fish because there's so many cool fish everywhere. If you get to know those fish and get to love them, I think you, yeah, you'll start making those choices. That's the key. Cool. Well, great talking with you, Jay. Oh, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. We hope everybody gets out there and enjoys all the fish and check out the Red Drum. Go listen for it. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick and my co-host is Guy Eero. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert, production management by Gabriella Montaquin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.